0: THE LIFE OF A CHRISTIAN MAN by John Calvin We have said that the object of regeneration is to bring the life of believers into concord and harmony with the righteousness of God, and so confirm the adoption by which they have been received as sons. But although the law comprehends within it that new life by which the image of God is restored in us, yet... As our sluggishness stands greatly in need both of helps and incentives, it will be useful to collect out of Scripture a true account of this Reformation, lest any who have a heartfelt desire of repentance should in their zeal go astray. Moreover, I am not unaware that, in undertaken to describe the life of the Christian, I am entering on a large and extensive subject— one which, when fully considered in all its parts, is sufficient to fill a large volume. We see the length to which the fathers, in treating of individual virtues, extend their exhortations. This they do not from mere loquaciousness, for whatever be the virtue which you undertake to recommend, your pen is spontaneously led by the copiousness of the matter, so to amplify, that you seem not to have discussed it properly, if you have not done it at length. My intention, however, in the plan of life which I now propose to give, is not to extend it so far as to treat of each virtue specially, and expatiate an exhortation. This must be sought in the writings of others, and particularly in the homilies of the Fathers." For me it will be sufficient to point out the method by which a pious man may be taught how to frame his life aright, and briefly lay down some universal rule by which he may not improperly regulate his conduct. I shall one day possibly find time for more ample discourse, or leave others to perform an office for which I am not so fit." I have a natural love of brevity, and perhaps any attempt of mine at copiousness would not succeed. Even if I could gain the highest applause by being more prolix, I would scarcely be disposed to attempt it, while the nature of my present work requires me to glance at simple doctrine with as much brevity as possible. As philosophers have certain definitions of rectitude and honesty from which they derive particular duties in the whole train of virtues, so in this respect scripture is not without order, but presents a most beautiful arrangement, one to which is every way much more certain than that of philosophers. The only difference is that they, under the influence of ambition, constantly affect an exquisite perspicuity of arrangement, which may serve to display their genius, whereas the Spirit of God, teaching without affectation, is not so perpetually observant of exact method, and yet by observing it at times sufficiently intimates that it is not to be neglected. Number 2. The scripture system of which we speak aims chiefly at two objects. The former is that the love of righteousness, to which we are by no means naturally inclined, may be instilled and implanted into our minds. The latter is to prescribe a rule which will prevent us, while in the pursuit of righteousness, from going astray. It has numerous admirable methods of recommending righteousness. Many have been already pointed out in different parts of this work, but we shall here also briefly advert to some of them. With what better foundation can it begin than by reminding us that we must be holy because God is holy? Leviticus 19.1 1 1 Peter 1.16 for when we were scattered abroad like lost sheep, wandering through the labyrinth of this world, he brought us back again to his own fold. When mention is made of our union with God, let us remember that holiness must be the bond, not that by the merit of holiness we come into communion with him. We ought rather first to cleave to him, in order that, pervaded with his holiness, we may follow whether he calls but because it greatly concerns his glory not to have any fellowship with wickedness and impurity. Wherefore he tells us that this is the end of our calling, the end to which we ought ever to have respect, if we would answer the call of God. For to what end were we rescued from the iniquity and pollution of the world into which we were plunged, if we allow ourselves during our whole lives to wallow in them? Besides, we are at the same time admonished that if we would be regarded as the Lord's people, we must inhabit the holy city of Jerusalem, Isaiah 35.8, which, as he has consecrated it to himself, it were impious for its inhabitants to profane by impurity." Hence the expressions, Who shall abide in thy tabernacle, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness, Psalm fifteen one and 2 and 24, 3 and 4. For the sanctuary in which he dwells certainly ought not to be like an unclean stall, number three. The better to arouse us, it exhibits God the Father, who, as He hath reconciled us to Himself in His anointed, has impressed His image upon us, to which He would have us to be conformed, Romans 5.4. Come, then, and let them show me a more excellent system among philosophers who think that they only have a moral philosophy duly and orderly arranged." They, when they would give excellent exhortations to virtue, can only tell us to live agreeable to nature. Scripture derives its exhortations from the true source, when it not only enjoins us to regulate our lives with a view to God, its author, to whom it belongs, but after showing us that we have degenerated from our true origin. The law of our Creator adds that Christ through whom we have returned to favor with God, is set before us as a model, the image of which our lives should express. What do you require more effectual than this? Nay, what do you require beyond this? If the Lord adopts us for His sons, on the condition that our life be a representation of Christ, the bond of our adoption... Then unless we dedicate and devote ourselves to righteousness, we not only with the utmost perfidy revolt from our Creator, but also abjure the Savior Himself. Then, from an enumeration of all the blessings of God in each part of our salvation, it finds materials for exhortation. Ever since God exhibited himself to us as a father, we must be convicted of extreme ingratitude if we do not in turn exhibit ourselves as his sons. Ever since Christ purified us by the laver of his blood and communicated this purification by baptism, it would ill become us to be defiled with new pollution. Ever since he engrafted us into his body, we who are his members should anxiously beware of contracting any stain or taint. Ever since he who is our head ascended to heaven, it is befitting in us to withdraw our affections from the earth, and with our whole soul aspire to heaven. Ever since the Holy Spirit dedicated us as temples to the Lord, we should make it our endeavor to show forth the glory of God, and guard against being profaned by the defilement of sin. Ever since our soul and body were destined to heavenly incorruptibility and an unfading crown, we should earnestly strive to keep them pure and uncorrupted against the day of the Lord." These, I say, are the surest foundations of a well-regulated life, and you will search in vain for anything resembling them among philosophers, who, in their commendation of virtue, never rise higher than the natural dignity of man. Number 4. This is a place to address those who, having nothing of Christ but the name and sign, would yet be called Christians. How dare they boast of the sacred name! NONE HAVE INTERCOURSE WITH CHRIST, BUT THOSE WHO HAVE ACQUIRED THE TRUE KNOWLEDGE OF HIM FROM THE GOSPEL. THE APOSTLE DENIES THAT ANY MAN TRULY HAS LEARNED CHRIST WHO HAS NOT LEARNED TO PUT OFF THE OLD MAN WHICH IS CORRUPT ACCORDING TO THE DECEITFUL lusts AND PUT ON CHRIST, EPHESIANS 4.22. THEY ARE CONVICTED, THEREFORE, OF FALSELY AND UNJUSTLY PRETENDING A KNOWLEDGE OF CHRIST, whatever be the volubility and eloquence with which they can talk of the gospel. Doctrine is not an affair of the tongue, but of the life. It is not apprehended by the intellect and memory, merely, like other branches of learning, but is received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds a seat and habitation in the inmost recesses of the heart. Let them, therefore either cease to insult God by boasting that they are what they are not, or let them show themselves not unworthy disciples of their divine Master. To doctrine in which our religion is contained we have given the first place, since by it our salvation commences. But it must be transfused into the breast, and pass into the conduct, and so transform us into itself, as not to prove unfruitful. If philosophers are justly offended, and banished from their company with disgrace, those who, while professing an art which ought to be the mistress of their conduct, converted into mere loquacious sophistry, With how much better reason shall we detest those flimsy sophists who are contented to let the gospel play upon their lips, when, from its efficacy, it ought to penetrate the inmost affections of the heart, fix its seed in the soul, and pervade the whole man a hundred times more than the frigid discourses of philosophers? 5. I insist not that the life of the Christian shall breathe nothing but the perfect gospel, though this is to be desired and ought to be attempted. I insist not so strictly on evangelical perfection as to refuse to acknowledge as a Christian any man who has not attained it and this way all would be excluded from the church, since there is no man who is not far removed from this perfection, while many who have made but little progress would be undeservedly rejected. What then? Let us set this before our eye as the end at which we ought constantly to aim. Let it be regarded as the goal towards which we are to run, for you cannot divide the matter with God." undertaking part of what his word enjoins, and omitting part at pleasure. For in the first place, God uniformly recommends integrity as a principal part of his worship, meaning by integrity real singleness of mind, devoid of gloss and fiction, and to this is opposed a double mind. As if it had been said that the spiritual commencement of a good life is when the internal affections are sincerely devoted to God in the cultivation of holiness and justice. But seeing that in this earthly prison of the body no man is supplied with strength sufficient to hasten in his course with due alacrity, while the greater number are so oppressed with weakness— that hesitating and halting and even crawling on the ground, they make little progress, let every one of us go as far as his humble ability enables him, and prosecute the journey once begun. No one will travel so badly as not daily to make some degree of progress. This, therefore, let us never cease to do, that we may daily advance in the way of the Lord." and let us not despair because of the slender measure of success. How little soever the success may correspond with our wish, our labor is not lost when today is better than yesterday, provided with true singleness of mind we keep our aim and aspire to the goal, not speaking flattering things to ourselves nor indulging our vices, but making it our constant endeavor to become better until we attain to goodness itself. If during the whole course of our life we seek and follow, we shall at length attain it. When relieved from the infirmity of flesh, we are admitted to full fellowship with God. The Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin Chapter 7 A Summary of the Christian Life Of Self-Denial Although the law of God contains a perfect rule of conduct admirably arranged, it is seen proper to our divine master to train his people by a more accurate method to the rule which is enjoined in the law. And the leading principle in the method is that it is a duty of believers to present their bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service, Romans twelve one. Hence he draws the exhortation, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The great point, then, is that we are consecrated and dedicated to God, and therefore should not henceforth think, speak, design, or act without a view to his glory. What he has made sacred cannot, without signal insult to him, be applied to profane use. But if we are not our own but the Lord's, it is plain both what error is to be shunned and to what end the actions of our lives ought to be directed. We are not our own. Therefore, neither is our own reason or will to rule our acts and counsels. We are not our own, therefore let us not make it our end to seek what may be agreeable to our carnal nature. We are not our own, therefore as far as possible let us forget ourselves and the things that are ours. On the other hand we are God's, let us therefore live and die to Him. Romans 14.8 we are gods, therefore let his wisdom and will preside over all our actions. We are gods. To him, then, is the only legitimate end. Let every part of our life be directed. O oh, how great the proficiency of him who, taught that he is not his own, has withdrawn the dominion and government of himself from his own reason, that he may give them to God. For as the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves, so the only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom, than to follow the Lord whenever He leads. Let this, then, be the first step to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. By service I mean not only that which consists in verbal obedience, but that by which the mind divested of its own carnal feelings implicitly obeys the call of the Spirit of God. This transformation which Paul calls the renewing of the mind Romans 12.2 Ephesians 4.23 though it is the first entrance to life was unknown to all the philosophers. They give the government of man to reason alone thinking that she alone is to be listened to. In short, they assign to her the sole direction of the conduct. But Christian philosophy bids her give place and yield complete submission to the Holy Spirit, so that the man himself no longer lives, but Christ lives and reigns in him. Galatians 2.20 2. Hence follows the other principle that we are not to seek our own but the Lord's will and act with a view to promote His glory. Great is our proficiency when almost forgetting ourselves, certainly postponing our own reasons, we faithfully make it our study to obey God and His commandments. For when Scripture enjoins us to lay aside private regard to ourselves, it not only divests our minds of an excessive longing for wealth or power or human favor, but eradicates all ambition and thirst for worldly glory and other more secret pests. The Christian ought, indeed, to be so trained and disposed as to consider that during his whole life he has to do with God. God. For this reason, as he will bring all things to the disposal and estimate of God, so he will religiously direct his whole mind to Him. For he who has learned to look to God in everything he does is at the same time diverted from all vain thoughts. This is that self-denial which Christ so strongly enforces on His disciples from the very outset, Matthew 16.24 which, as soon as it takes hold of the mind, leaves no place either first for pride, show and ostentation, or secondly, for avarice, lust, luxury, effeminacy, or other vices which are engendered by self-love. On the contrary, wherever it reigns not, the foulest vices are indulged in without shame, Or, if there is some appearance of virtue, it is vitiated by a depraved longing for applause. Show me, if you can, an individual who, unless he has renounced himself in obedience to the Lord's command, is disposed to do good for its own sake. Those who have not so renounced themselves have followed virtue at least for the sake of praise. The philosophers who have contended most strongly that virtue is to be desired on her own account were so inflated with arrogance as to make it apparent that they sought virtue for no other reason than as a ground for indulging in pride. So far, therefore, is God from being delighted with these hunters after popular applause with their swollen breasts that he declares they have received a reward in this world, Matthew 6.2, and the harlots and publicans are nearer the kingdom of God than they, Matthew twenty-one thirty-one. We have not yet sufficiently explained how great and numerous are the obstacles by which a man is impeded in the pursuit of rectitude, so long as he has not renounced himself. The old saying is true. There is a world of iniquity treasured up in the human soul. Nor can you find any other remedy for this than to deny yourselves, renounce your own reason, and direct your whole mind to the pursuit of those things which the Lord requires of you, and which you are to seek only because they are pleasing to him. 3. In another passage Paul gives a brief, indeed, but more distinct account of each of the parts of a well-ordered life. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearance of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, Titus 2, 14 After holding forth the grace of God to animate us and pave the way for his true worship, he removes the true greatest obstacles which stand in the way ungodliness to which we are by nature too prone and worldly lusts which are of still greater extent under ungodliness he includes not merely superstition but everything at variance with the true fear of God worldly lusts are equivalent to the lusts of the flesh Thus he enjoins us in regard to both tables of the law to lay aside our own mind and renounce whatever our own reason and will dictate. Did he reduce all the actions of our lives to three branches of sobriety, righteousness, and godliness? Sobriety undoubtedly denotes as well chastity and temperance as a pure and frugal use of temporal goods, and patience, endurance of want. Righteousness comprehends all the duties of equity in rendering to everyone his due. Next follows godliness, which separates us from the pollutions of the world and connects us with God in true holiness. These, when connected together by an indissoluble chain, constitute complete perfection. But as nothing is more difficult than to bid adieu to the will of the flesh, subdue, nay, abjure our lusts, devote ourselves to God and our brethren, and lead an angelic life amid the pollutions of the world, Paul, to set our minds free from all entanglements, recalls us to the hope of a blessed immortality, justly urging us to contend, because as Christ has once appeared as our Redeemer, so on his final advent he will give full effect to the salvation obtained by him and in this way he dispels all the allurements which becloud our path and prevent us from aspiring as we ought to heavenly glory. Nay, he tells us that we must be pilgrims in the world, that we may not fail of obtaining the heavenly inheritance. Number four. Moreover, we see by these words that self-denial has respect partly to men and partly, more especially, to God. For when Scripture enjoins us in regard to our fellow men to prefer them in honor to ourselves and sincerely labor to promote their advantage, Romans 7.10, Philippians 2.3, He gives us commands which our mind is utterly incapable of obeying until His natural feelings are suppressed. For so blindly do we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has a good reason for exalting himself and despising all others in comparison. If God has bestowed on us something not to be repented of, trusting to it, we immediately become elated, and not only swell, but almost burst with pride. Devices with which we abound we both carefully conceal from others and flatteringly represent to ourselves as minute and trivial, nay sometimes hug them as virtues. When the same qualities which we admire in ourselves are seen in others, even though they should be superior, we, in order that we may not be forced to yield to them, maliciously lower and carpet them, in like manner in the case of vices, not contented with severe and keen animadversion, we studiously exaggerate them. Hence the insolence with which each as if exempted by the common lot, seeks to exalt himself above his neighbor, confidently and proudly despising others, or at least looking down upon them as his inferiors. The poor man yields to the rich, the servant to the master, the unlearned to the learned, and yet everyone inwardly cherishes some idea of his own superiority. Thus each flattering himself sets up a kind of kingdom in his breast. The arrogant, to satisfy themselves, pass censor on the minds and manners of other men and when contention arises the full venom is displayed. Many bear about with them some measure of mildness, so long as all things go smoothly and lovingly with them. But how few are there who, when stung and irritated, preserve the same tenor of moderation! For this there is no other remedy than to pluck up by the roots those most noxious pests, self-love and love of victory." This the doctrine of Scripture does, for it teaches us to remember that the endowments which God has bestowed upon us are not our own, but his free gifts, and that those who plume themselves upon them betray their ingratitude. Who maketh thee to differ, saith Paul, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? 1 Corinthians 4, seven. Then, by a diligent examination of our faults, let us keep ourselves humble. Thus, while nothing will remain to swell our pride, there will be much to subdue it. Again, we are enjoined, whenever we behold the gifts of God and others, so to reverence and respect the gifts is also to honor those in whom they reside. God, having been pleased to bestow honor upon them, it would ill become us to deprive them of it then we are told to overlook their faults, not indeed to encourage by flattering them, but not because of them to insult those whom we ought to regard with honor and goodwill in this way, with regard to all with whom we have intercourse, our behavior will be not only moderate and modest, but courteous and friendly. The only way by which you can ever attain to true meekness is to have your heart imbued with the humble opinion of yourself and respect for others. Number five, how difficult it is to perform the duty of seeking the good of our neighbor. Unless you leave off all thought of yourself and in a manner cease to be yourself, you will never accomplish it. How can you exhibit those works of charity which Paul describes unless you renounce yourself and become wholly devoted to others? Charity, says he, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, suffereth long in his kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, and so on. WERE IT THE ONLY THING REQUIRED OF US TO SEEK NOT OUR OWN, NATURE WOULD NOT HAVE THE LEAST POWER TO COMPLY. SHE SO INCLINES US TO LOVE OURSELVES ONLY THAT SHE WILL NOT EASILY ALLOW US CARELESSLY TO PASS BY OURSELVES AND OUR OWN INTERESTS, THAT WE MAY WATCH OVER THE INTERESTS OF OTHERS, nay, SPONTANEOUSLY, TO YIELD OUR OWN RIGHT AND RESIGN IT TO ANOTHER. But Scripture, to conduct us to this, reminds us that whatever we obtain from the Lord is granted on the condition of our employing it for the common good of the Church, and that, therefore, the legitimate use of all our gifts is a kind and liberal communication of them with others. There cannot be a surer rule nor a stronger exhortation to the observance of it, than when we are taught that all the endowments which we possess are divine deposits entrusted to us for the very purpose of being distributed for the good of our neighbor. But Scripture proceeds still further when it likens these endowments to the different members of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. No member has its function for itself or applies it for its own private use, but transfers it to its fellow members members, nor does it derive any other advantage from it than that which it receives in common with the whole body. Thus whatever the pious man can do, he is bound to do for his brethren, not consulting his own interest in any other way than by striving earnestly for the common edification of the church. Let this, then, be our method of showing goodwill and kindness, considering that, in regard to everything which God has bestowed upon us, and by which we can aid our neighbor, we are his stewards, and are bound to give account of our stewardship. Moreover, that the only right mode of administration is that which is regulated by love. In this way we shall not only unite the study of our neighbor's advantage with regard to our own, but make the latter subordinate to the former, unless we should have omitted to perceive that this is the law for duly administering every gift which we receive from God, he of old applied that law to the minutest expressions of his own kindness.' He commanded the first fruits to be offered to him as an attestation by the people that it was impious to reap any advantage from goods not previously consecrated to him. Exodus twenty two twenty nine and twenty three nineteen. But if the gifts of God are not sanctified to us until we have with our own hand dedicated them to the giver, it must be a gross abuse that does not give signs of such dedication. It is in vain to contend that you cannot enrich the Lord by your offerings, though, as the psalmist says, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not unto thee. Yet you can extend it to the saints that are in the earth, Psalm 16, 2 and 3, and therefore a comparison is drawn between sacred oblations and alms is now corresponding to the offerings under the law. Number 6. Moreover, that we may not be weary in well-doing, as would otherwise forthwith and infallibly be the case, we must add the other quality in the Apostle's enumeration. Charity suffereth long and is kind, is not easily provoked. 1 Corinthians 13.4. The Lord enjoins us to do good to all without exception, though the greater part, if estimated by their own merit, are most unworthy of it. But Scripture subjoins a most excellent reason when it tells us that we are not to look to what men in themselves deserve, but to attend to the image of God which exists in all, and to which we owe all honor and love. But in those who are of the household of faith, the same rule is to be more carefully observed, inasmuch as that image is renewed and restored in them by the Spirit of Christ. Therefore, whoever be the man that is presented to you as needing your assistance, you have no ground for declining to give it to him. Say he is a stranger. The Lord has given him a mark which ought to be familiar to you, for which reasons he forbids you to despise your own flesh. Galatians 6.10 Say, he is mean and of no consideration. The Lord points him out as one whom he has distinguished by the luster of his own image, Isaiah 58.7. Say that you are bound to him by no ties of duty. The Lord has substituted him, as it were, into his own place, that in him you may recognize the many great obligations under which the Lord has laid you to himself. "'Say that he is unworthy of your least exertion on his account, "'but the image of God by which he is recommended to you "'is worthy of yourself and all your exertions. "'But if he not only merits no good, "'but has provoked you by injury and mischief, "'still this is no good reason "'why you should not embrace him in love "'and visit him with offices of love. "'He has deserved very differently from me,' you will say. "'But what has the Lord deserved?' whatever injury he has done you, when he enjoins you to forgive him, he certainly means that it should be imputed to himself. In this way, only we attain to what is not to say difficult, but altogether against nature, to love those that hate us, render good for evil, and blessing for cursing, remembering that we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but look to the image of God in them, an image which covering and oblique Alliterating their faults should by its beauty and dignity allure us to love and embrace them. 7. We shall thus succeed in mortifying ourselves if we fulfill all the duties of charity those duties however are not fulfilled by the mere discharge of them though none be omitted unless it is done from a pure feeling of love for it may happen that one may perform every one of these offices in so far as the external act is concerned and be far from performing them aright for, for you, you see too. some who would be thought very liberal and yet accompany everything they give with insult by the haughtiness of their looks or the violence of their words And to such a calamitous condition have we come in this unhappy age that the greater part of men never almost give alms without contumely. Such conduct ought not to have been tolerated even among the heathen, but from Christians something more is required than to carry cheerfulness in their looks and give attractiveness to the discharge of their duties by courteous language." First, they should put themselves in the place of him whom they see in need of their assistance, and pity his misfortune as if they felt and bore it, so that a feeling of pity and humanity should incline them to assist him just as they would themselves. He who is thus minded will go and give assistance to his brethren, and not only taint his acts with arrogance or upbraiding, but will neither look down upon the brother to whom he does a kindness, as one who who needed his help or keep him in subjection is under obligation to him. Just as we do not insult a diseased member when the rest of the body labors for its recovery, nor think it under special obligation to the other members because it has required more exertion than it has returned, a communication of offices between members is not regarded as at all gratuitous, but rather as a payment of that which, being due by the law of nature, it were monstrous to deny.' For this reason, he who has performed one kind of duty will not think himself thereby discharged, as is usually the case when a rich man, after contributing somewhat of his substance, delegates remaining burdens to others as if he had nothing to do with them. Everyone should rather consider that however great he is, he owes himself to his neighbors, and that the only limit to his beneficence is the failure of his means. The extent of these should regulate that of his charity. 8. The principal part of self-denial, that which, as we have said, has reference to God, let us again consider more fully. Many things have already been said with regard to it which it were superfluous to repeat, and therefore it will be sufficient to view it as forming us to equanimity and endurance." First then, in seeking the convenience of tranquility of the present life, Scripture calls us to resign ourselves and all we have to the disposal of the Lord, to give Him up the affections of the heart, that He may tame and subdue them. We have a frenzied desire, an infinite eagerness to pursue wealth and honor. Intrigue for power, accumulate riches, and collect all those frivolities which seem conducive to luxury and splendor. On the other hand, we have a remarkable dread, a remarkable hatred of poverty, mean birth, and a humble condition, and feel the strongest desire to guard against them hence, in regard to those who frame their life after their own counsel, we see how restless they are in mind, how many plans they try, to what fatigues they submit, in order that they may gain what avarice or ambition desires, or, on the other hand, escape poverty and meanness. To avoid similar entanglements, the course which Christian men must follow is this. First, they must not long for, or hope for, or think of any kind of prosperity apart from the blessing of God. On it they must cast themselves, and there safely and confidently recline. For however much the carnal mind may seem sufficient for itself, when in the pursuit of honor or wealth, It depends on its own industry and zeal, or is aided by the favor of men. It is certain that all this is nothing, and that neither intellect nor labor will be of the least avail except in so far as the Lord prospers both. On the contrary, his blessing alone makes a way through all obstacles and brings everything to a joyful and favorable issue. Secondly, though without this blessing we may be able to acquire some degree of fame and opulence, as we daily see wicked men loaded with honors and riches, yet since those on whom the curse of God lies do not enjoy the least particle of true happiness— Whatever we obtain without His blessing must turn out ill. But surely men ought not to desire what adds to their misery. 9. Therefore, if we believe that all prosperous and desirable success depends entirely on the blessing of God and that, when it is lacking, all kinds of misery and calamity await us, it follows that we should not eagerly contend for riches and honors, trusting to our own dexterity and assiduity, or leaning on the favor of men, or confiding in any empty imagination of fortune, but should always have respect to the Lord, that under His auspices we may be conducted to whatever lot He has provided for us. First, the result will be that instead of rushing on, regardless of right and wrong, by wiles and wicked arts, and with injury to our neighbors, to catch at wealth and seize upon honors, we will only follow such fortune as we may enjoy with innocence. Who can hope for the aid of the divine blessing amid fraud? rapine, and other iniquitous arts, as this blessing attends him only who thinks purely and acts uprightly, so it calls off all who long for it from sinister designs and evil actions. Secondly, a curb will be laid upon us, restraining a too eager desire of becoming rich or an ambitious striving after honor. How can anyone have the effrontery to expect that God will aid him in accomplishing desires at variance with his word? What God with his own lips pronounces cursed never can be prosecuted with his blessing. Lastly, if our success is not equal to our wish and hope... We shall, however, be kept from impatience and detestation of our condition, whatever it be, knowing that so to feel were to murmur against God, at whose pleasure riches and poverty contempt and honors are dispensed. In short, he who leans on the divine blessing in the way which has been described will not, in the pursuit of those things which men are wont most eagerly to desire, employ wicked arts which he knows would avail him nothing, nor when anything prosperous befalls him will he impute it to himself and his own diligence or industry or fortune, instead of ascribing it to God as its author, if, while the affairs of others flourish... His make little progress, or even retrograde, he will bear his humble lot with greater equanimity and moderation than any religious man does a moderate success which only falls short of what he wished. For he has a solace in which he can rest more tranquilly than at the very summit of wealth or power, because he considers that his affairs are ordered by the Lord in the manner most conducive to his salvation. This, we see, is the way in which David was affected, who, while he follows God and gives up himself to his guidance, declares, Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother, Psalm 131, 1 and 2. 10. Nor is it, in this respect, only that pious minds ought to manifest this tranquility and endurance, it must be extended to all the accidents to which this present life is liable. He alone, therefore, has properly denied himself, who has resigned himself entirely to the Lord, placing all the course of his life entirely at his disposal." "'Happen what may, he whose mind is thus composed will neither deem himself wretched "'or murmur against God because of his lot. "'How necessary this disposition is will appear if you consider the many accidents to which we are liable. "'Various diseases ever and anon attack us. "'At one time pestilence rages. "'At another we are involved in all the calamities of war.' Frost and hail, destroying the promise of the year, cause sterility, which reduces us to penury. Wife, parents, children, relatives are carried off by death. Our house is destroyed by fire. These are the events which make men curse their life, detest the day of their birth, execrate the light of heaven, even censor God, and, as they are eloquent in blasphemy, charge him with cruelty and injustice. The believer must in these things also contemplate the mercy and truly paternal indulgence of God. Accordingly, should he see his house by the removal of kindred reduced to solitude. Even then he will not cease to bless the Lord. His thought will be, Still, the grace of the Lord which dwells within my house will not leave it desolate. If his crops are blasted, mildewed, or cut off by frost, or struck down by hail, he sees his famine before him, he will not, however, despond or murmur against God, but maintain his confidence in Him. We, thy people, and sheep of thy pasture, will give thee things forever. Psalm 79.13 He will supply me with food, even in the extreme of sterility. If he is afflicted with disease, the sharpness of the pain will not so overcome him as to make him break out with impatience and expostulate with God, but recognizing justice and lenity in the rod will patiently endure. In short, whatever happens, knowing that it is ordered by the Lord, he will receive it with a placid and grateful mind, and will not contumaciously resist the government of him at whose disposal he has placed himself and all that he has. Especially let the Christian breast eschew that foolish and most miserable consolation of the heathen, who, to strengthen their mind against adversity, imputed it to fortune, at which they deemed it absurd to feel indignant, as she was aimless and rash and blindly wounded, the good equally with the bad." On the contrary, the rule of piety is that the hand of God is a ruler and arbiter of the fortunes of all, and instead of rushing on with thoughtless violence, dispenses good and evil with perfect regularity.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com.